Dan Kuhn is set to go live on ETH mainnet on March 13th. And this is a huge moment for the Ethereum community who has just been bag holding while everything else rips for the past few months. Obviously EIP 4844, which is going to introduce data blobs and that's going to kind of set the foundation for dank sharding in the future. Uh, I think L2 tokens are kind of primed to rip off of this because transaction fees are going to go down significantly. And hopefully you see some applications arise that will just bring on a whole new wave of entrance to the L2s. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0x10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today is Monday, February 12th. This should air on uh, Wednesday, February 14th. And today we are joined by Zero X Pibbles and Matt from the Blockworks Research team to jam on the latest market happenings. Ren, do you want to kick us off with kick us off with some governance updates? Yeah, for sure. So uh, first is the interesting tweet that caught our eyes this morning on sort of like the effectiveness of the Arbitrum STIP program. So Elbarto underscore crypto on Twitter put out some interesting statistics. We'll link the post uh, the tweet in the show notes later. So Overall, the program drove a $400 million increase in TVL, and it basically cost the Arbitrum DAO $54 of incentives for every new address. And overall, the program resulted in roughly $27 million of additional fee revenue, which works out to $1 fees for every $2 in ARB. Um, so in VC land, there's this thing called LTV and CAC. LTV stands for Lifetime Value. CAC stands for cost of customer cost of acquisition or customer customer acquisition cost, right? So at least just for this Arbitrum SIP program, it has a LTV to CAC ratio of 0.5, which means you're kind of losing money. You're spending more money to acquire a customer than the money that you're making from a customer. And in terms of Arbitrum, the only money that you're making is sequence of profits, right? Normally VCs want to see a ratio of 3x of the lifetime value to to the customer acquisition cost. So overall, I don't think this was as effective as individuals thought, but that's like a relatively superficial statement, right? Like it drove an increased number of TBL. You don't know how much these additional new addresses that came in will basically help drive future profits. So it kind of remains to be seen. Anyone have thoughts around the incentive program design and perhaps like what KPIs the, the DAO should be incentivizing for or optimizing for in the future? I guess one thing that comes to my mind is that this was an experiment and it was looked at and it was posed in that in that light. Um, so even though maybe it didn't have the success that it could have, I think that there'll be a lot of good lessons learned for future incentive programs. So that's definitely another barometer or like important metric to take into account, which is what lessons can we learn for future incentive programs? The Arbitrum DAO has already actually voted and passed a additional LTIP, long-term incentive program. So they'll be giving out way more incentives in the future. I just think it's important that that program takes into account the lessons learned here. And if it manages to do so successfully, then this can be looked at as a win. Um, of course, you know, spending more money than you actually, the, the metrics that you uh, pose are not looking so good. But at the same time, I just think that's another important thing to keep in mind. 
I'd like to see the rewards actually vest over six months, let's say, and then you can only claim that month's allocation as the user if you were active on Arbitrum that month, just so the value of the customer over the lifespan of the incentives that you paid out is a little bit longer. I think there's a lot of room for improvement on incentive proposal design. And uh, hopefully, like Matt said, they incorporate some of the lessons learned into the long-term incentive program that they uh, just passed on the forum the other day. Yeah, and if you compare it to... The other competitor, you look at Optimism's retroactive public good funding and like you see like Synthetics and Velodrome get a little bit of rewards, but then you see a lot of the OP get wasted on random initiatives. Like I'm going to translate the Optimism white paper to Korean, pay me $250,000. So it's like if these are our two models, at least Arbitrum's is, you know, a little bit more successful and useful for the ecosystem. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you there. All right, next up on news, we have Solana Fee Market Designs. It's been getting a decent amount of attention lately. So for those that have, that have been listening, Solana Fee Markets are a little broken today. Not completely broken, but relatively broken, especially the isolated fee markets. So there's a few things at play here. Solana's base fee is fixed per signature, which means that no matter how many compute units or in Ethereum land gas your transaction uses, you pay the same base fee. However, priority fees are priced per compute unit requested, but 50% of it is burned and the other 50% of it is distributed or passed on to the validator. Uh, the scheduler today or like the default scheduler implementation also has some wonky issues with it. It doesn't work as well as it should and it results in sort of transaction placement or inclusion being pretty non-deterministic and add in some network jitter and it basically means that a lot of the time you don't pay for what you get in terms of your transaction being included fast enough or at like a high enough part of the block this is being partially fixed in 1.18 but overall there's still an incentive spam right uh, some statistics from Gito is that 58% of computers wasted by failed arbitrages and 98% of arbitrage transactions fail. And for example, 50% of priority fees being burned means that out-of-protocol payments are encouraged. So there's a few problems at the core here. One is inefficient compute unit usage and requests because different compute units, sorry, different transactions carry different compute units and those cost the same base fee. And the second one is it's costless to write lock accounts. When you sort of write a transaction on Solana, you need to specify which accounts you are touching or if you're more familiar with Ethereum, which pieces of state that you want to interact with. But this doesn't cost anything. And so you could quote unquote DDoS or spam Solana just by sending an infinite, infinite number of transactions that write lock accounts so, for example, one attack vector is write locking a Oracle update account, right? If you keep on write locking that and the actual Oracle update doesn't get priority, then the Oracle price feed basically would never update. So, there's one ongoing proposal that's very much being debated right now, and it's called SIMD 110 or 0110, and it's basically an exponential fee for write lock accounts. It increases the fees in a targeted manner over time to reduce the incentive to spam. And how it works is it basically proposes tracking the exponential moving average of each account's compute unit utilization per block. 
and the cost of write locking an account would increase exponentially based on its respective trailing compute unit utilization. So it's kind of like EIP one five five nine, but much more granular for specific accounts and every single account that exists on Solana. However, the Fire Dancer team doesn't really like this proposal in its current state, and they're going to draft a counter proposal. But overall, I think the main takeaway is that Solana fee markets are pretty broken today. There's a lot of active debate and discussion that's ongoing, but we haven't found the optimal solution yet. And I think Solana will be forced to find a solution in this year. If not, when users 10x, when activity 10x, something will likely break. That was a bit nerdy, but anyone have any thoughts? It it kind of reminds me just of back in the day, and it feels like a lifetime ago. But before EIP fifteen fifty nine, like you'd constantly log into MetaMask and and have transactions get dropped on Ethereum. That's a lot how it feels like interacting with Solana today when it gets pretty busy. It's tough to get a transaction in. So I think it's just a testament to the fact of how novel Solana is, and there's still a lot of iteration to be done. But I'm definitely looking forward to like a more baked out fee mechanism because I think it'll make the chain like ten x better. Yeah, I definitely see both sides of it, which is on one side, you know, Solana is a pretty nascent network. Uh, they're trying to, like you said, novel. It's trying to achieve a lot of new and innovative things. Um, so, you know, facing difficulties early in its life cycle is not only expected, but uh, it's 100% likely like that, that was going to happen. Um, so I do think, you know, Solana is a great network. I think it's really has a good user experience. And even though sometimes in times of high congestion, it gets hard to get transaction in. Uh, hopefully and likely it will be fixed on the other side of that um, even the solutions posed today aren't you know uh, encumbers don't fix the whole problem and there'll likely be more problems in the future i don't think it's like as simple as just adding um, you know a fee that exponentially increases depending on the number of write locks that this account has uh, put out like for instance if i'm understanding correctly you'd potentially be able to just sybil via many different wallets opposed to you know doing it all from one wallet so, uh, like, you know, on one hand, Solana is innovative and nascent and early in its life cycle. And on the other hand, these problems will likely be difficult to fix and continue for, you know, uh, the foreseeable future. Yeah, agree there. Right. Next, moving on to Bitcoin L2s. Sam or Matt, do you guys want to take this or I can take it too? Sure. There was a interesting tweet or it was actually a portion of a Twitter space that Eric Wall uh, put on Twitter where he basically is explaining, you know, what something actually needs in order to be a Bitcoin L2 and why, uh, by his definition, and I guess by many thought leaders definitions, anything that launches on top of the BitVM is not actually an L2. Um, basically, his main point and the way he posed it was because the BitVM bridge does not have permission, it's an optimistic bridge. Uh, so basically, it has a, you know, you have a reliance that at least one validator is actually acting honestly and flagging, uh, you know, malicious transactions. He says, because that's not permissionless, because there's no ability for anyone to go be that one validator, that one honestly acting validator, it's not actually a, uh, you know, a roll up or an L2 by his definition. I think really what he meant even more so than that was that there's no ability to exit the system without that one honest actor. So for instance, Arbitrum is the exact same in that it does not have a permissionless validator set that allows, you know, there's a, a whitelisted 20 validators who are able to, to create these fraud proofs and say a transaction is malicious. So very similar in that regard. But the difference is that you have uh, forced inclusion and an escape patch. So you actually have the ability to 
get your Bitcoin out of the system, despite, um, you know, this this being a fact of the the way the protocol is set up. So it was, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, my main takeaway from it is that nomenclature is a big issue. And I think we already all, all know that. Like, I think that this is most exemplified when we're talking about TVL and rollups. For instance, when I think of TVL and rollups, I like to think about it as L2 beats definition, which is the total value secured of externally bridged, natively bridged, and natively minted tokens. But if you look at DeFi Llama's definition of L2B, it actually has nothing to do with, you know, the value secured by the rollup. And rather, it's all about, you know, the total value in DeFi smart contracts on, on the total value locked in DeFi smart contracts on the rollup. So, you know, these are just completely different metrics. They're both valuable, but it's important to understand both. And likewise, the definition of what is a rollup is, you know, very up in the air today with uh, a lot of controversy and, you know, people not really understanding, uh, you know, the differences and the nuances between what is a rollup. So, of course, this is going to be a problem with decentralized systems, like who defines what these what this nomenclature actually means. But it's just, you know, a crazy shit show and makes it really, really hard for someone who's not so deep in the weeds to understand. It's even difficult for, you know, all of us to understand, I think. Yeah, God knows that 95% of crypto users don't understand the trust assumptions of Ethereum based rollups. So I think for Bitcoin, it's probably like exponentially worse and i do think at some point that you're just gonna see like a really big rug or like something goes wrong on a bridge contract and everyone's stuck there there's no force inclusion and like a huge amount of tvo or assets are basically gone forever i agree ren we can also drop that uh the link to the space in the in the show notes and as well we'll drop some notes on uh basically different types of proving mechanisms that would need to be enshrined on Bitcoin via soft fork um, into the show notes as well. I found it pretty interesting. But for the next news update, we've got informal systems on Twitter today on Monday announced an integration between uh, Babli, I always butcher this, Babylon, (laughs) there we go, and the Cosmos Hub. And it's essentially enabling anyone to delegate Bitcoin to a validator of a consumer chain. And the consumer chain can actually set what percentage of their security is uh, backed by Atom versus Bitcoin. And that yield will be paid out. Um, Actually, I'm not sure if that yield would be paid out in Bitcoin. Now that I'm thinking through it, that wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense. But nevertheless, kind of an interesting spin on the consumer chain narrative over in the cosmos ecosystem not sure if you guys have any thoughts here i think it'll be interesting to watch how much it gets adopted because one of my main questions is how much duo token staking will be utilized in eigenlayer so rather than a middleware a protocol whatever being restaked purely by sorry being secured purely by restake eve a protocol can choose to have a dual staking model where it's partially secured by restaked even and partially secured by their own token. And I think the main reason you would want that is basically you don't want like all of the value accrual inflation going to like restaked if you also want some of that to go to your own token. So it'll be interesting to see if anyone adopts like a dual token staking model. Do you think would the in your head in your mental model would dual staking be to secure different parts of the protocol or ecosystem or would it be uh you know two different assets that are both able to be slashed if there's malicious actions um in the like one part of the protocol I think at least for me it would be two different assets securing the same thing or like the same components of the protocol however I'll caveat with that I don't think that we're going to see a lot of like dual token staking models. I feel like it's going to mostly be either if like 
you use eigenlayer to secure a protocol and at some point you're like okay i'm gonna switch i don't need this like shared security or like food security anymore i'm gonna switch to my own token I think it's a good move though, because obviously Adam hasn't performed super well and the security of it is directly tied to the market value at stake. So I think having, I guess, like an exogenous collateral in Bitcoin as a slashable asset is is definitely makes the consumer chain value prop a lot stronger. For the next news update that we got, I got Vertex is uh, has been teasing Blitz. I've been talking about Vertex for quite some time, so I felt the need to shout this one out. But they have an order book Dex coming to Blast, which is the yield-bearing L2 by Pac-Man and co. And basically, I'm not sure what the relation is between VRTX, the token, or Vertex, the protocol devs, and Blast. But the fact that they're kind of hyping it up on Twitter makes me think maybe they're intertwined in some way. So I found that kind of interesting. And then one other update, Coinbase earnings on the 15th. I believe that is Thursday this week. So definitely know a bunch of guys on the team are excited about that to see what the numbers come in at. I think everyone generally thinks that it will beat analyst expectations, but I guess we'll see. I'm not sure if a Coinbase run as well would lead to kind of like a base alt season. I think a lot of people are thinking maybe that's a way to get beta exposure to Coinbase equity, but uh Nonetheless, definitely excited to see those numbers. Now we'll have a quick word from Stride. Thanks to our fantastic sponsor, DYDX. All right, guys, for this week's DYDX segment, we have Vishal, co-founder of Stride Labs, the leading liquid staking provider in the Cosmos ecosystem. So Stake DYDX recently launched. Can you explain a bit about how Stake DYDX works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so DYDX is super interesting and it's a little bit different than other um, LSTs. Uh, so the way uh, STDYDX works is users will come in with their DYDX and uh, liquid stake it. So what this means is they'll sign some transaction on the DYDX chain, so on liquid stake. Um, those funds will then get uh, automatically sent to the Stride blockchain and automatically converted to STDYDX, which is delivered to the user. Uh, on the back end, what happens is the DYDX uh, Stride will send it to an account that it owns on the DYDX chain. And when we say mean by owns, uh, the way Stride works is, is kind of unique. It's not like this account is owned by multisig or uh, a validator or something like that. It's actually owned by the Stride blockchain. So it has the same kind of trust properties as um, any sort of POS chain. And for Stride, uh, it's backed by billions of dollars economic security. So it's a, it's a very kind of trustless and decentralized uh, custody of, of these tokens. Um, after Stride gets the DYDX, it goes and stakes it on the DYDX chain. But here's where it starts to get a little bit interesting. Um, DYDX, uh, as, as some of you may know, doesn't give inflationary yield in DYDX token. Rather, it streams USDC revenue from traders and users of the DYX protocol uh, to its stakers. But Stride needs to convert this USDC back to DYDX to help to restake it and allow for compounding and all sorts of benefits. And the way it does that right now is, up, I think, pretty novel. So it takes that USDC and uh, trustlessly sends it to Osmosis, another account that the Stride blockchain owns, and then will automatically kind of uh, trade that USDC for DYDX and does this, it batches it up. Uh, so only trades once every hour, does in a relatively small size, make sure there isn't enough slippage. Um, there'll be extremely trades, converts that USDC to DYDX, then sends that DYDX back to the DYDX chain and restakes it. And so from the user's perspective, let's say I liquid stake one DYDX, I get back one STDYDX. Um, the token doesn't rebase, but through time as you get the USDC real yield, the one STDYDX can be redeemed or traded for more than one DYDX. So in a year, for example, one STDYDX might equal 1.2 DYDX. 
That's a really clever design for a token that's, you know, USDC bearing uh, for stakers. So thanks for explaining that. Um, how has adoption been thus far? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've seen pretty good adoption early on for SGDYDX, uh, right around $3 million in TVL, we're around a million dollars in liquidity. Uh, we're expecting that uh, we've seen pretty healthy growth on that so far. We're expecting some pretty good traction going, going forward too. We have a number of kind of really interesting integrations with SGUIDX on lending markets, to mint stable coins, perf markets, et cetera, um, as well as a few kind of custodial uh, solutions kind of coming forward um, and a pretty large uh, stride airdrop for early users as well. Um, so we've seen good growth in that and we're expecting uh, you know, a pretty good growth going forward as well. I think one thing that users are familiar with is liquid staking, at least within an EVM context, but within the Cosmos ecosystem, right? What benefits does liquid staking bring for users? And perhaps what are the current limitations? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. Um, so some of the benefits are kind of the same as, as anywhere um, with Ethereum as well, but you get, um, so for Cosmos chains, there's kind of this fundamental trade-off that most chains have between staking yield and DeFi. Um, for Ethereum, it's not as large of a concern because most of the kind of base currency is ETH, which has relatively low staking yield. For most Cosmos chains, they care a lot about the chain having really high economic security for something like DYDX, for example. Uh, it matters a lot that the chain has high security so that traders feel comfortable trading on it, depositing large amounts of uh, collateral, um, and it really makes the, the chain kind of function better. But in order to get that high economic security, the chain has to pay uh, pretty significant yield to stakers. And while all this helps secure the chain, it makes it really hard to use that DYDX elsewhere. So if you want to, for example, mint a stablecoin against your DYDX, um, or you want to deposit it as a collateral lending market, or, or even use it on AMM like Uniswap, um, you're foregoing this 15, 20% staking yield that the UIDX token offers. And it generally makes it so very little DeFi will occur on, on the token. Um, but with liquid staking, you can kind of get access to this uh, yield benefit um, without having to compromise being participating in DeFi. And one thing we've noticed is um, the rate of which uh, LSTs are used in DeFi is significantly higher in Cosmos than any other ecosystem. Um, and a large part of that we think is because uh, you have this really high kind of staking yield. One thing that's really neat for DYDX is they have a, a really big priority on MEV, um, in particular from validators not doing MEV extraction. So there's a whole kind of framework that we can talk about that DYDX tries to enforce on validators about try to help encourage validators to not uh, not basically uh, MEV extract uh, DYDX users. Um, but for a lot of the people who delegate stake on DYDX, uh, a lot of this is totally abstracted away from them. You know, they're, they're uh, believers in the protocol, believers in, in the product, uh, but not necessarily aware of all the politics from the validators. Uh, liquid staking helps do is kind of provide one layer of abstraction on top of this. Uh, and Stride really prides itself in having a really high quality delegation strategy. But Stride tries to take all this stuff into account. So how much contribution is the validator doing to the protocol? Is the validator med extracting? Is the validator running performing infrastructure? Um, are they doing stuff with go to market? Um, we can help kind of better the decentralization of uh, the validator set. Two other kind of quick benefits I just want to highlight. One is uh, for DYDX, because there's USDC yield, a lot of users might just want to hold their DYDX position. So they're like, hey, really in DYDX, here's a percentage that has my portfolio. And that they're not necessarily checking in every day or every week to do something with the USDC or to reinvest it. Uh, but with Stride, you can just hold your ST DYDX and you know exactly how large your DYDX position is. Um, and it also leads to buy pressure on the DYDX token from users who say, hey, I don't want the USDC. I want that to go right back into DYDX. That's the token I already believe in. Um, the last thing, and this depends on your jurisdiction, um, but with the USDC, a, a lot of jurisdictions treat uh, staking income as uh, short-term capital gains or income or just like dividend income. Um, but SDYDX is holding a token that's not rebasing. 
um, under some jurisdictions, it might be long-term capital gains. So for users who want to hold DYDX for a long-term, um, they can significantly make it uh, much more tax efficient to hold the, the LST version. Um, but there are some kind of limitations and, and two kind of big ones to highlight. And hope, we hope these will get kind of get addressed over time. Um, but one is liquidity. So if you're kind of a large user, uh, you, wanna, you want to hold like a eight-figure uh, SDUIDX position, you want to have confidence that uh, you can exit that position quickly in order to get uh, maximal utility from the liquid nature of your LST. Um, what we observed is over time, liquidity will build up. Right now, there's right around a million dollars of liquidity, which is enough for most retail users, but not necessarily enough for whales. Uh, but we hope that kind of liquidity will increase. Another thing is the LST is really useful if you can use it in duration. So if you can mint stable coins against it, deposit as collateral and borrow against it, um, you know, trade with it on lots of uh, pairs on AMMs. Um, we have uh, right like six or seven integrations for SDUIDX. We're hoping to kind of expand that to the whole suite of DeFi applications in Cosmos, but also on Ethereum, Solana, et cetera, um, through time. Wow, that was that was awesome. That was like a ton of information. We could definitely do a whole podcast on this. So maybe uh, sometime in the future we can do that. But unfortunately, we're out of time here. We will be sure to link to uh, Stride's documentation, the site, as well as your Twitter, Vishal. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to ask you to do AX and see where it goes. Awesome. Well, let's get over to Hot Seat Cool Throne. All right, moving on to our Hot Seat Cool Throne segment. I'm going to throw it to Sam first. Sam, who do you got in the Hasi Cool Throne this week? I got Bitcoin ETFs in the Cool Throne. I'm actually looking at our uh, podcast prep sheet, and I think we've got all Cool Thrones this week, which is kind of funny, but I guess that's what happens when price goes up. But anyways, they collectively hold 3.5% of the total Bitcoin supply, which is uh, over 2.5 billions of net inflows since they launched. And meanwhile, Bitcoin just hit 50K today, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, there's this awesome dashboard from Hill Dobby, which we can link to in the show notes as well. Basically shows um, if the current pace continues, then 2.33% of Bitcoin will be funneled into ETFs each year, which is pretty mind boggling. And a fun fact, actually, that I feel like a lot of people don't know, uh, the halving block reward is actually equal to the four-year inflation rate. So today that block reward is 6.25. So that means 6.25% inflation over four years or 1.56% per year. So when the halving hits in April this year, that will actually be reduced to 3.125, which equates to 0.78% of inflation every year, which I kind of find like a fun fact. Um, the passive flows, in my opinion, from the spot ETF approval was just massively underpriced. Like people did not think it would be that big of a deal. And it's proving in real time to be a very huge deal. Uh, Dan mentioned in our chat the other day, actually, just how his parents' friends have been asking about Bitcoin ETFs. And I've been getting the same thing. So it feels like real, like high signal interest. Uh, and not as much like the retail frenzy that we've seen in, in past years. And on top of that, we still have ordinals rocking. There's a new project like literally every half an hour to an hour. So that's definitely still going crazy. And then we already talked about Bitcoin L2 conversations picking up. So I don't know. I just think this cycle is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think something that's interesting is how underestimated the ETF flows were. And we foreshadowed this on our analyst hours call, I think in December. I think it was you, Sam, and me. We were just like, people are still under-allocated Bitcoin and they will stay under-allocated Bitcoin for the entire run. And like, you're seeing that a lot in like the crypto Twitter bubble where people are like, all right, this is the top. Like, we're going to pull back now. And it, it, we're like expanding beyond this little bubble that we've lived in for three years on crypto Twitter. And we're fundamentally seeing something different that's just going to keep growing. 
Yeah, I wanted to follow up there with some more personal data points. My dad asked me about the ETF approval uh, a few weeks ago, I think. And then he basically asked me like, oh, I see like prices going up. Which ETF should I buy? And I told him like, I have no clue. Maybe go like support one of the more crypto native ones like Bitwise. If not, BlackRock is always a safe option. And my girlfriend too. My girlfriend... I think she thinks that I'm like becoming rich. And so she's asking me like, can I give you like a few thousand dollars to put into crypto? <laughs> I haven't took the money yet just because I don't want to lose it. But I have told her that if she wants to, she can go buy a Bitcoin ETF. Um, So I do think like eventually as price goes up even more, right? People will be like, shit, like I need to have like some allocation to it. I don't want to miss out on like free money. And I think at this point, like everyone knows how much money that some people made last cycle during COVID. And so the Bitcoin ETF is a very natural entry point for a lot of these participants. And even if like these participants like never come on chain, I do think that those flows are like significant, not just from like institutions, but also like just like normal retail. I've been seeing that chart float around on Twitter a lot today, though, like Google search interest for the word Bitcoin, and it's still super, super low. Like that, I think that I don't love looking at that metric and putting too much weight to it, but I do think it's a testament to the fact that not many of my normal friends who like don't pay attention to crypto, like they have no idea Bitcoin is only 15, 16, 17K off all-time highs, which is just kind of wild. I also add on that, I think I've seen some discussions or from like the Bloomberg ETF guys about two, I'm not sure if this is the correct term, like index funds or sort of like investment options. And then they basically allocate between like 60% stocks, 20% bonds, um, 10% like emerging markets or whatever. And like a few of these have started to include like a 1% or like a 0.5% Bitcoin allocation. And basically the better is that like people will allocate to these like diversified portfolios which have some small percentage of like a bitcoin allocation and over time like i do think the flows from there will be relatively significant i'm not sure how this information is displayed to users but if you did like a back test right of this like diversified portfolio the one with like a one or like two percent bitcoin allocation would probably wildly outperform like the one with like a hundred percent smp because that goes up like 10 percent on average every year so perhaps like that would be kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy but also like a little bit reflexive in nature i wish i could find the tweet i lost it but one of the vanek guys or one of the bitwise guys tweeted this morning was like i think it was like six or seven times as much institutional capital was now exposed to to crypto as before the bitcoin etfs launched um don't quote me on that again it was just a tweet but it was from one of these reputable sources and i think it was six times it was like you know one percent of i want to say financial advisors uh you know, advertised that they were allocated or their clients were allocated to crypto. And I was sitting at like six or 7%, if I remember correctly. I definitely agree. It feels like no one, you know, even if your parents are asking you like, oh, what do you think, you know, Bitcoin ETF, Coinbase stock, like are these things that I should be getting interested in? It's not at all like a level of craze where your friends are texting you about, um, you know, some ghost chain scammy AI coin, which is what I would expect uh, once we reach the mania phase. To me, it feels a lot like it did when Bitcoin first surpassed 20K um, in 20 or, you know, surpassed 20K after uh, the bear market in 2018, 2019. And, you know, for us, it's like super exciting. Times are interesting. There's lots of cool stuff going on, lots of cool things being built. But for the rest of the world, they're like not paying so much attention yet. And it's always interesting how the mania phase doesn't really start until we're at the point of like, oh, this stuff's all, you know, 
the mindset of a crypto native at the point when mania starts versus at a time like now changes completely as well. So I guess just all things to be aware of and like keep in mind when you're thinking about starting when to de-risk and, uh, you know, remove exposure to this space. I just think it's wild too to zoom out and think like Apple's like a $3 trillion company and Bitcoin's like a $1 trillion asset, like which is, you know, 50% of the entire industry's market cap. So I don't know. That's just like mind boggling if you think about it and it's an entire asset class. So I'm definitely excited for for the years ahead. But Ren, who you got in the hot seat? Cool throne. I got another Coup Drone this week. Um, it also helps when price goes up. I have CleanSpark on the Coup Drone this week. So CleanSpark is a Bitcoin miner. I want to say they're maybe the third or fourth largest. They announced their Q4 2023 earnings last Thursday after market close. And since then, they have basically gone up by 100% or doubled. Um, overall, all of the other miners have also proceeded to Fusen. For example, today, Marathon is up 12%, Riot is up 9%, and it seems like Wall Street is kind of finally pricing in like both the ETF flows, but also it's kind of like the positive impact on BTC miners. So for some statistics on CleanSpark specifically, their quarterly revenue increased from 27.8 million to 73.8 million year on year, which is a 165% increase. Their net income increased from negative 29 million to positive 25.9 million. So it went from a negative 46 cents earnings per share to a positive 14 cents earnings per share. And their adjusted EBITDA increased to roughly 69 million from negative 2 million year on year. So I feel like I've been boo posting about Bitcoin a lot on my Twitter. Um, and it's good to see that the market's like finally pricing that in. And even though like all of the data is on chain, especially in December, which was kind of like a blowout month for ordinal activity, if I'm not wrong, out of the total sort of minor revenue, 17% of that was from like order no activity and transaction fees. And I just don't think Wall Street priced that in enough, right? If not, like if the market was like even close to efficient, CleanSpark shouldn't have ripped 20% after market close and then 30% the next day, which is like basically 50% in like 12 hours um, after announcing their earnings. And I think another thing to notice that the Bitcoin miner infrastructure war is obviously heating up a lot, right? On the back of the halving, which is coming in roughly, 60 days or so, CleanSparks might hash rate surpass 12.5 exohashes per second. And they have a strategic call option to purchase 160,000 Bitmain miners um, for a path to 50,000 exohashes per second. And there's like a crazy amount of miner infrastructure investment last year. If I'm not wrong, the number was 1.2 billion in mining machine purchases. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, to see that heat up even more this year. So any thoughts on Bitcoin miners? I'll just add that it's really awesome to see for the first time ever that Bitcoin miners are making more money from the transaction fees as opposed to block rewards. So there's finally this vision for, you know, sustainable security for Bitcoin. Um, I know a lot of people on our team always had this, you know, fundamental issue with Bitcoin in that in their heads, there was no way for the network to sustain its security while block rewards were going down. In other words, eventually, once enough happenings happened, whether it was this one or the next one or the next one. Um, you know, the, the wouldn't be profitable to be a miner anymore and the network would start losing security. So finally seeing multiple days over, you know, that past couple of months where more of the block of a miner's revenue for mining a block was from the transaction fees as opposed to the block rewards is 
really, really cool. And it gives us this in a way for us to envision how Bitcoin can be uh, sustainable and have sustainable security into the future. So shout out ordinals. Um, you know, there's a lot of hate for them, but at the end of the day, I think in my head, anyone who says that ordinals are not bad for Bitcoin is mentally ill, has something wrong with them because um, this is really, really, really good. I think Riot's pretty interesting too. Just want to call out the fact that, you know, they, once the electricity prices in Texas get to like a certain ridiculous price, like point, they just sell that extra energy capacity back to the grid. And that's like another way that miners are starting to like scale their revenue and diversify their, their revenue, I guess I should say, uh, through different mechanisms as opposed to just directly mining Bitcoin. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. I think that's the beginning of a bigger trend and not just like some one-off use case. I also add that I think there's obviously the big catalyst for Bitcoin in terms of the ETF flows, but also like Bitcoin really didn't have anything other than Bitcoin. Last cycle was the cycle you have like L2s, ordinals, like different like VMs made for Bitcoin and probably like one of the best ways to get exposure to that other than Bitcoin itself is this Bitcoin miners who will benefit from all of the ecosystem activity the developer mindshare, the additional transaction fees. And there's a great Spartan report that they put out in December last year with basically an overview of the entire Bitcoin ecosystem, including like ordinal infrastructure, L2s, VMs, whatever. And I feel like it's definitely worth paying attention to, not just like Bitcoin the asset, but also Bitcoin the ecosystem. What's up, everyone? March is approaching fast, and I want to give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming. It's right around the corner, and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're going to be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors on things like strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stable points, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from an institutional front to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monumental event. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London. Next, uh, we'll pass it off to Matt. Who you got on the hot seat? Who's drone? I also have a cool throne today. Um, so I'm going to hold ARC21 shares in the cool throne. They've recently added some language to their Ethereum ETF application that includes uh, you know, the ability for them to stake the assets to drive more revenue to holders of their ETF if it gets approved. This is really, really cool. Um, basically, you know, if you hold ARC21 shares, Ethereum ETF, if it gets approved and launches, you'll also receive staking rewards. So not only does this mean, you know, potentially a good way to get exposure to Ethereum, or at least if, uh, you know, I don't think anyone would want to hold ETFs that didn't have that exposure, at least no one in this room would. So very good for, for us, but also interesting and amazing to see institutions, you know, wanting to be involved in staking, um, being sophisticated enough to have the infrastructure to do so. So very, very cool. Good for you, ARC21 shares. And uh, hopefully, that you know, we see this narrative start to kick off throughout the year, whether it be, you know, this month, next month or Q2, Q3. I think that Ethereum will have its moment in the spotlight. 
Um, I don't necessarily know if it's going to be the the best performer throughout the whole year, but I do think definitely ETH ETF, something that's imminently going to start being talked about and ARK21 shares probably at the lead of it. Yeah, one thing that's interesting about this is wondering what a staking provider they're going to opt for. You know, is it going to be Coinbase ETH? Because if so, then it's going to feed Coinbase revenues and then Coinbase stock will continue to rip or they could just do their own thing with like Figment. But then you have to wonder at what point do people deem something like Lido to be safe enough to institutionally stake assets in, like when they want to sidestep some of those Coinbase, Coinbase ETH fees and get something that's a little more EV. Uh, another thing that's important about this is just the development of DVT, especially with someone like Obel Labs bringing their Charon or Karen a client to market. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, so far, only EtherFi is using Obol so far. And that's the only like, well, there's also SSV, but so there's two DVT plays on the market right now. And I think prioritizing validator uptime and just geographic dispersion is really important, especially as more and more institutional assets come in. The LST angle is actually really interesting to me because my main qualm with it was you're going to have to have a certain amount of liquidity. So like I thought maybe like it would only be allowed to be like 10, 15 or max like 20% of assets under management to be actually staked. Because if you get into a scenario where everyone's selling and then you have a long withdrawal queue, then obviously you don't have the underlying to sell in order to make sure you're you're even on the books or maybe they could do some hedging through derivatives i don't really know but the liquid staking angle is pretty interesting just because you'd have that added liquidity obviously then you introduce peg strength uh risk but nonetheless i feel like that'd be a much more attractive avenue to go and obviously bullish lst providers yeah i'm actually gonna talk about the dvt angle too because i think that's also very interesting if you're you know securing very very large amounts of ETH staked it makes sense to be using a dvt solution so obol and ssv which are really haven't had so much um you know haven't really been looked at or really uh caught a narrative yet definitely could be a catalyst these ETH etfs for for them if there's any partnerships there there is also a third play outside of ssv and obol that's diva um so obol does not have a token interesting one to potentially uh, farm because likely they will have a t- token in the future. Diva does have a token, but it is not transferable. So you can't buy it, can't sell it. But um, they did like an airdrop a few months back to, I believe, holders of LSD tokens and you know a few other parties. But Diva is actually like an LSD DVT solution. So it's got, instead of just being a DVT layer where you know uh, anyone can go and launch their own validators with this technology, that have multiple node operators for a single validator. With Diva, it's actually the full stack all the way up to the LSD token itself. Um, so yeah, would definitely be paying attention to that space as the Ethereum ETF narrative potentially gets closer to, you know, become catalyzing and be, being a catalyst for these DVT protocols. I'm not sure if I'm thinking about this completely wrong, but assuming Arc stakes like some portion of the ETH in this ETH ETF in to something. Um, isn't like the ETF stock or like shares of the ETF kind of a liquid staking token because you can use that. You can like borrow margin against it. Like that would have its own peg. Like I have no clue how to think about like the liquidity and like peg risk given that now there's like a off-chain LST with like an on-chain like staking component. And I probably need to think that through a bit more, but I think that would be like a really, really interesting dynamic. I also wonder if, 
Lido would ever introduce like a institutional version of Lido where only institutions can stake. They have like a whitelisted validator set rather than eventually expanding to like 5,000 validators. Kind of similar to how like say Ave two years ago launched the ARC, which never really turned out to be anything, but that was like just for institutions only because institutions do have very stringent requirements on what they can do, right? Like for example, if you're an institution, you're listed, I don't think you can interact with any contract that, that has had a tornado cash asset, like even just pass through it before. So if like I troll, I send some like tornado cash Eve to like a specific validator, like is the regulator going to come after me? And I don't think that that's something that an ETF issuer or like a custody, I don't think that's something that they're going to want to deal with. So I feel like they're going to adopt institutional solutions. And for now, it seems like Coinbase is the safest option. Obviously they have like, uh, like that 25%, I think take rate, but also, you know, they're like a qualified custodian and there's only so many qualified custodians within the U S as a coin stockholder, the thought of a 25% fee revenue on Ethereum held at an ETF is just absolutely, uh, puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I agree with your last point too, Ren, in terms of like having to be OFAC compliant aware and maybe having like a whitelisted validator set for those kind of solutions. Although I don't think any of us here are super keen on that idea, but unfortunately I think that's just like the reality of the situation. And back to your comment on like, does this become an LST? That is really interesting. It's like, we just talked with Stride. You guys just heard that in the DYDX segment a minute ago. And are they going to take the ETH and just put it back in the trust and then your shares are redeemable for more? Like, I, yeah, I, I don't understand how that'll actually look in practice, but it'll be fun to watch that play out. All right, Spencer, you want to hit us with the last hot seat coup zone? Yeah, so this actually continues to play into the ETH ETF thing. Dan Kuhn is set to go live on ETH mainnet on March 13th. And this is a huge moment for the Ethereum community who has just been bag holding while everything else rips for the past few months. But um, one thing that's neat about this is it, it has EIP 4788, which is going to kind of replace the, um, the need for custom oracles for liquid staking solutions. Because right now, Lido, Eigenlayer, et cetera, they have to use these complex oracles that are also a risk for um, reporting beacon chain validator data. So this is a, a huge like necessity before you start seeing this broader staking narrative pick up, especially with like Eigenlayer set to like actually provide some AVSs in the near future. Uh, another cool thing is obviously EIP 4844, which is gonna introduce data blobs and that's going to kind of set the foundation for dank sharding in the future. Uh, I think L2 tokens are kind of primed to rip off of this because transaction fees are going to go down significantly. And hopefully you see some applications arise that will just bring on a whole new wave of entrance to the L2s, especially as ETH mainnet just continues to get more and more congested as more people come on with the price going up. Um, one final EIP that I'm looking at is transient storage which is going to lay the foundation for Uniswap v4, which is moving to a singleton contract and it's going to have its own flash accounting system. But basically it's just going to like optimize smart contract development to where you can do a lot more interesting things within the contract. 
I think out of like 4844, which is like the very obvious one, I think EIP 1153 is probably the one that I'm most excited about. I'll be interested to see a few things. I think Ambient launched on Ethereum after they launched on Scroll. And so it'll be interesting because Ambient also uses like a singleton contract model. So it'll be interesting to see like how does Ambient volume or like liquidity respond to EIP 1153 or more specifically Uniswap V4 going live. Another thing that I'm excited about is Uniswap V4 hooks. I feel like hooks are maybe like the frames moment for Farcaster. It allows like anyone to build kind of anything that you can code, right? Depending on like specific events happening, whether that's like depositing liquidity, withdrawing liquidity, tipping to liquidity providers, or making a swap. And I think there are some really interesting hook ideas that are going to appear over the next, say, half a year or so that may have implications both for liquidity providers, sort of like top of block MEV, and also sort of just general uni ecosystem so to say because it goes from like a dex to like this like crazy ecosystem where people can build like all of these different hooks but i also with that think with that it comes like a whole host of problems like what if someone just copy and paste the hook governance turning on a fee switch but that's probably a problem for later i just agree with pibbles on the the l2 token narrative i mean mainnet is literally completely unusable right now like there's nothing going on in guays at 100 plus like that's insane to me. I've been seeing a lot more cries on Twitter of why don't we like try and optimize the base layer a little bit more within Dencoon or like maybe like an upgrade after that. And I, I would personally really like to see that because you just can hardly even bridge through Ethereum without paying a $50 transaction fee. And that's just horrible UX. Yeah, I'm pretty done doing things on Ethereum, to be honest. Like it's just it prices me out or maybe it's not even the pricing me out and it's rather just the UX on L2s and on Solana and everywhere else is just so much better at this point, um, especially for cross-chain stuff. Like you mentioned, it, you can't bridge through Ethereum. Like if I have assets on Ethereum and I want to go buy something on Arbitrum, looking at you know current rates, like $50, $100 fee. Um, so yeah, I do agree. I think there has been some conversation about um, doing small things to help with making uh, you know block space a little bit more abundant post-Dencoon. Uh, this would not be anything including an upgrade and a fork. It would rather be at the validator client level, the node client level. Um, so hopefully we see more progress there. I know Justin Drake and Vitalik were both in support of it. So likely that's a very good foundation for it to succeed in making block space more abundant. I would disagree with both of you guys. Like L2s and Uniswap are both poised to catch a narrative with Denkun, And I will most definitely be uh, getting myself exposed to those tokens at some point in the future, at least for a short period of time. Uh, Uniswap specifically, I think, is kind of slept on. I think everyone knows, or at least not everyone at all, but everyone within our in our circle knows about the how Dunkoon impacts L2s, but I think it's a little bit less known about how it impacts Uniswap. So I do think that's a very interesting angle to look at it from. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to call it. We got a, a quicker episode today, but uh, thanks for coming on, Pibbles and Matt. We will see you guys here next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching today's ZeroX Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.